You're listening to 1001 Album Club, where each episode we discuss a different album from Robert Demery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. talking about talking heads remain in light on the line i have rob what's up ben, i'm a government man and kyle take a look at these hands remain <laughs> in light is the fourth studio album by the american rock band talking heads released on october 8th 1980 by sire records the producer was brian eno and the genre is new wave post-punk world beat funk dance rock and art pop and i'm going to read from all music review william rollman The musical transition that seemed to have just begun with Fear of Music came to fruition on Talking Heads' fourth album, Remain in Light. I, Zimbre, in Life During Wartime from the earlier album served as the blueprints for a disc on which the group explored African polyrhythms on a series of driving groove tracks, over which David Byrne chanted and sang his typical disconnected lyrics. Remain in Light had more words than any previous Heads records, but they counted for less than ever in the sweep of the music. The album's single, Once in a Lifetime, flopped upon release, but over the years, it became an audience favorite due to a striking video and its inclusion in the band's 1984 film, Stop Making Sense. Even without a single, Remain in Light was a hit, indicating that Talking Heads were connecting with an audience ready to follow their musical endeavor. And the album was so inventive and influential, it was no wonder. As it turns out, however, it marked the end of one aspect of the group's development and was their last new music for three years. All right, what do we think of Talking Heads? Remain in light. Stone classic. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. This is like the perfect melding of everything Talking Heads are doing. It's so good. Yeah, this is them taking their their good stuff and just making it better. The rhythms and beats are more sophisticated. The lyrics are more obtuse, but intriguing. Yeah, this is a classic. And it's this is one of those bands where it's just fun to watch the evolution. Mm-hmm. Right. I think we've gotten every Talking Heads album in this book so far. Think I don't we, think we've missed any. Yeah, Mm-mm. that's impressive. Are we getting any more? I don't think so. We have to. This is it. What? This is it. Yeah, we're, we're getting Tom Tom Club. But this is, uh, this is where it stops. I think that they uh, did a disservice putting the first Talking Heads record in here and not going with uh, Stop Making Sense. But the, first uh, one, the first one's important. 
Yeah, I yeah, definitely would have put stop making sense. I would have made an argument for speaking in tongues as well. Yeah, but a lot of speaking in tongues is performed on stop making sense, so it could be redundant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what about this? What makes this one so good? They're really leaning in to that. I think Fella Cootie. Oh yeah, they're. That, that, I think I think think that's what makes it good. It's so groove forward. Uh, <laughs> I I hadn't I didn't know for a fact that they were listening to Fela Kuti until until this week when I was reading up on this album but like absolutely not surprised I would have assumed they were listening to to Fela Kuti I I did like uh this whole album they kind of they they had they worked on just the grooves and the music of it as its own thing and then like went mm-hmm. back afterward and like uh you know crafted it into songs added lyrics and stuff but it's definitely groove forward groove focused and those awesome rhythms just pulling in all those inference influences it's like they hit the sweet spot on 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 making a a blend of styles you know yeah i thought it was really mm-hmm. interesting that uh chris uh franz and uh, uh tina uh waymouth they you know were discussing leaving because obviously david byrne is quite difficult to work with um and also Eno is is a bit of a ego man himself but they didn't really want to leave leave but they decided hey let's take a vacation go to the Caribbean and sort of think about what what to do in the band they didn't want to be just David Burden's backing band right they they thought that the rest of the talking heads had more to offer and they saw the way the wind was blowing where it's kind of like the David Byrne show right yeah, mm-hmm. which definitely should not be because they're all quite amazing, uh, talented, yeah. you know, musicians. I thought it was cool that they said they became involved in uh, Haitian voodoo like religious ceremonies. They still uh, practice in practice. Yeah. Percussion instruments and socialize with like reggae rhythms and, uh, you know, some of that African uh, polyrhythms. It's so great. And that. That tracks, you know, there's there's the voodoo scenes and stop making sense. Yeah. With with pop staples. <clears throat> I found out something about this record that stopped my heart. Uh, Robert Palmer played percussion on this record. <laughs> Robert <Nope>. Palmer. <laughs> I said stop making sense. I meant true stories. Sorry. But uh, <laughs> yes, Robert Palmer. That's awesome. What? <laughs> and, and Franz played uh, drums. He returned the favor. He played drums on Looking for Clues by Robert Palmer. <laughs> Is Robert Palmer a percussionist first, or was he a guy they knew who happened to be in the studio also? Well, here's the thing, Ben. I always assumed that he was just kind of a kind of a, a like, crooner here, kind of guy. Like, you here's know? a here's a cowbell, Robert Palmer. Or, <laughs> or is it like, oh no, we need to get Robert Palmer on this track. Well, it's interesting. I think this is going to throw me down another rabbit hole. I only found this out hours ago. <laughs> but I love Robert Palmer, and I love the production on his songs. So. You know, I had to do a couple of click-throughs. I was like, this is the same Robert Palmer. It's the same guy. Yeah, that's surprising. Uh, what do we it's think? It's surprising, of- too, because the percussion's so good. Like, Yeah. It, it doesn't take much to get a percussion credit. So I'm curious how much <laughs> percussion he contributes. You know? You're thinking Especially he might just when there's be like there already. And- there- well, yeah. I mean, th- this album already has like six percussionists that know what they're doing right i don't want to discount robert palmer at all but if he was a friend of the band and if he was hanging out and they're like we're all grooving here's a cowbell you know like and get a get a percussion (laughs) credit or if robert palmer was like 
check out these timbale licks. (laughs) Yeah, he's only listed as a percussion. I mean, Eno was in there doing percussion. Uh, There's, yeah, there you're right. There's like six people doing percussion. I mean, Eno's credited as a songwriter on this record. Like um, that synth solo on the first track is. Was that yeah, is that a synth very, very much. or is that is that a uh, uh, synthesized guitar like guitar synth? Because I know that Adrian I'm they got they sure. called Adrian Bellu, who's like a session guitar guy, to lay down guitar synth on some of these tracks. I'm pretty sure that is the same thing that he was using on Low um, okay. for that first track. Guitar synthesizers like on this, but I that first track it, it sounds exactly like that. Uh, what the hell is it called? The little like battleship is three oscillator the, thing. The one that comes with, like, like a little, little suitcase you can take it on the plane with you. Yeah, <laughs> battleship. You just plug it in. You got little plugs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that, that's how like, those little those little battleship plugs for uh, for patching things. Yeah, he did a pretty good job on this record, though. I'm very oh, impressed with yeah, the yeah. the sort of production. It sounds. Very clean. Oh no, you can tune a stereo to this record. It like even like my old ass vinyl copies, like it sounds fucking amazing coming through speakers. Can mm-hmm. confirm. Mm-hmm. Uh we're listening to the Great Curve right now. And I swear you can pick Brian Eno's voice out of out of the chorus. Like right right there. Like in the world, in mm-hmm. the world. That's Brian Eno, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was it was interesting reading about uh how much he was involved with this record and and sort of him, him fighting David Byrne, fighting the band, just like three different ideas about what this album should be. But in the end, I mean, they pulled it, it off. Man. It speaks for yeah. itself. Yeah. You know, uh, Brian, you know, uh, wanted his picture on the cover with the other four pictures. <laughs> I so, <bet> he did. <laughs> so, OK, so about this cover, uh, this cover was it, it was kind of Tina's baby she met some people she went back to school and she took classes at mit and she met some computer dudes at mit and so these are these images the front and the back are computer processed and altered photographs making this the first computer art album cover uh but so like the cover where where, like it's their four faces and they're just like obscured by red uh the initial plan was to have Brian Eno's face over the red. So like all of their faces were obscured by Brian Eno's face, which would have also been really cool. Yeah. That would have been a creative way to get his face on the cover. You know, just like these, like four, like altered monsters that all kind of look a little like a distorted Brian Eno. (laughs) That's so funny for a producer to be like, I've got an idea for your album cover. I'll just put my face in all your faces. Well, I think that, I think Brian Eno wanted to be on the cover. And I think Tina, uh, Tina, who took a lot of the creative direction on how the art was going to look, that was one of her concepts. She was going to try that before, before deciding to do just like the red. Yeah. She said it was uh, to uh, sort of reinforce what a big ego he had for mm-hmm. this, for this album. I'm sure they went with the right choice. I would have, I, I would have liked to see their, their like <laughs> the rough draft of that one. I, I bet it would have looked cool. <laughs> Sometimes the world has a load of questions. 
I did find uh, interesting David Gaines sort of instructed uh, David Byrne, who was having writer's block at the time uh, when this, this album was being written. He didn't really couldn't really get over the hump of of creating the lyrics, which to me, you know, listening to this album later, it, it sounds so together in his uh, in his approach to the lyrics. But uh, David Gaines said he needed to be freer with those, his sort of lyrical content. He says uh, rational, you know, lyrics, rational thinking has its limits. So you need to bring in more irrational um ideas and things to to get the point across it's so strange though because you listen to a song any one of these songs and you get a sense of what david byrne wants to communicate even though it might not be a i went down the street and i saw a pretty girl you know like just very basic lyrics it still it still translates in the way that the the lyrics uh are sung and how they uh how they fit together. I just find yeah, it really I, amazing. I agree with you, Birch. Um, you know, I, I pour over these lyrics and especially with David Byrne and you can see kind of from album to album, they just get, you can kind of see what stuff's about, but it's interesting because once in a lifetime, I think is the most successful song on the album. One of the most successful and, you know, everyone kind of knows what it's about. You know, um, it's about kind of growing up and, and, you know, becoming an adult and not recognizing your life for a second. It's kind of surreal. But what's interesting was I found a quote where uh, he just said, uh, talking about writing the lyrics to that song, he said, maybe I'm fascinated with the middle class because it seems so different from my life, so distant from what I do. I can't imagine living like that. So that song's kind of like from an outsider's perspective, almost, because, mm-hmm. you know, you see about the, the beautiful wife and the, and the car and the house, and that's that's not his world, you know? And yet, you know, that's an MTV staple. I remember growing up with MTV and see that video on TV, you know. Yeah, that, that was my first yeah. introduction to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that was one of the reasons they became bigger and bigger is because, you know, that was an early MTV video. And any any band that had a video at the beginning of MTV, it just got played in heavy rotation because they were still figuring out, you know, how you know, bands were still just starting to make videos. So if you have a video, it's just going to get a, it's just going to play every, every day. Yeah. We're still, this is that guitar synthesizer you're talking about. I was wondering if that was, we're listening to the great curve right now, like near the end. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet solo. The great curve, which you were just listening to, uh, does have the most dense and cryptic lyrics, in my opinion, of the whole album. The world moves on a woman's hips. Uh, She wanted to find, so say so. That is Birch. What do you, Anybody got any ideas? That song like uh, broke my brain a little bit. I think it's all just about the rhythm, and he's he's kind of post meaning with the lyrics, which is fine, but it can stick with you. I'd go with the rhythm. Yeah, I, yeah. I get lost in the rhythm of that song. I, I I don't know even know if I've heard the lyrics to the Great Curve before. I just get into like a rhythm trance whenever that song comes on. Yeah, I just start shaking wild. my butt, man. Yeah. Rob, on your copy, how uh, on the back? Uh, how is it? credited because i know that like they couldn't agree on how to credit it. it's like different it, releases are all have like different ways they they say how it's credited yeah uh on my copy it is um by david Byrne, brian eno and talking heads that's what mine says too i think yeah. there were other but ones then on the little uh yeah 
on the lyric on, on the lyric sheet that it comes with, uh, bottom of it just says uh, all songs written by David Byrne and Brian Eno, except mm-hmm. Overload and House in Motion, which is written by David Byrne, Brian Eno, and Jerry Harrison. Do you think that maybe Tina and Chris, the rhythm section of this band, should have gotten some kind of writing credit on this rhythm forward album that was their idea, and they paid for the studio time? Yes, <laughs> yes I do. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, I think you're getting you're getting into why. Uh, Tom why would Tom they Tuff ever is, leave? Yeah, <laughs> that's why they got a little fussy. Yeah, that's why they got into voodoo, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Just see this little David Byrne voodoo doll. <laughs> Can I read you a uh, a wonderful little uh, Brian Eno anecdote about David Byrne? Um, but it is he, David Byrne, is a genuine eccentric. He's always been exactly like that, and I've seen him remain like that in quite extreme situations. For instance, we were mugged together once in New York. It was quite frightening. We were mugged by 14 people. My endearing memory is of David being dragged off into the bushes saying, uh-oh. That's absolutely true. It was like a cartoon scene. <laughs> I want to see like John Mulaney like in a recreation of that scene. David Byrne is like the most New York dude. Uh oh. Uh oh. Yeah, because we talked about the time he got robbed while he was nude, right? Like, have you guys seen the HBO special of uh, uh, American Utopia, like uh, the uh, David Burns stage production that he did on Broadway? is is most recent solo album American yeah. Utopia? I've seen parts of it. I haven't watched yeah, he, it yet. It's the one that he does with the whole all of his band marches. But at the end of the HBO special, it's like during like the credits, it shows he comes out of the dressing room after the show, gets on his bicycle, and rides home. <laughs> <laughs> Should we talk about so the last nice, track uh, on this record? Yeah, let's. Uh, you know, the, the, the Joy Division track. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think yeah. Um, the the overload. the The band had been reading about Joy Division in the press, but thought it'd be a fun experiment to write a song in the style of Joy Division without ever having listened to them. <laughs> they tried to uh, them, which is wild. Yeah, I mean, I don't nailed it. They nailed it. <laughs> I never knew that. I never knew that they kind of did that as a as a lark. Yeah, a goof. Like it's a very <laughs> steely, you know. Uh, hard core kind of song and um, yeah they were just kind of goofing about <laughs> but that's I don't know that's that's a really interesting you know experiment yeah same I read that I mean, and I, I thought the wait what they they just made it up and they thought it would be fun to do in the studio I, I kind of want to do that now I kind of want to uh, get professional musicians together and then just have them read a bunch of reviews for a band and then say, okay, just make a song that sounds like this. <laughs> yeah. It's almost, it's almost like when people get uh, like AI to do weird things, you know, by feeding it weird things. It's, it, it's, it sounds like an oblique strategy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. Which would make sense because you know, he's in the room too. Yeah. Curious if someone had actually heard joy division and, and directed them a little bit. <clears throat> Still. <laughs> hey guys. Yeah. <laughs> guys, listen to this. I'm 
uh, this album too, I usually try and touch on, you know, where it fits in the pantheon of rock or funk or dance or whatever going on at the time. And this one <clears throat> was sort of, uh, they said it attained widespread acclaim because it, it was sort of absorbing in this middle ground of it, it wasn't punk, you know, it wasn't like rock. It wasn't dance. It wasn't funk in it. And it really felt different. Uh, and it felt like a direction that everyone, it felt like pop music that was weird enough for, you know, people who didn't like soft rock, but it was different enough that people who, um, it wasn't outside of the box of everything. It's great. A few years later, we would start calling it alternative rock. Sure. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Or, I mean, post sort of like the post punk. I mean, it, it just mixes a lot of different things into this wonderful uh, collection. And I think that's what, you know, the fusion Samba, um, you know, Fela Kuti was was doing there. They were all sort of like adding and they wanted to do Fela Kuti meets rock and roll um, with this album. They nailed, they nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. job, team. Yeah. Everyone gets a star. Tina and Chris get two stars each. They were due stars. <laughs> uh, also, I I thought it was interesting. They obviously did the loops. Uh, Eno was very interested in doing loops and loops uh, from his experiments. And that this album feels very loop-driven. I mean, it's just loops over loops, which inspired, obviously, they were inspired by... Uh, rap hip hop that was going on at the time. And then also, I think that also inspired, a, you know, later, uh, hip hop artists who wanted to sort of have the sampling loops going on. They said they just became, uh, they were human quote, human samplers, you know, by the I time, read that too. time yeah. this album was done because they just were, they would just play the same thing over and over and over and over yeah, like like the bass and drum parts aren't looped. They're they are the loop, you know. Like they just like they you know they they jam and they'd flesh out these things in jams and isolate the parts that really worked, and then like the rhythm section would just yeah human sampler just like they would just get that part going and build the track over that. But, you know, don't, don't give them a writing credit or anything. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> really obvious, too. It becomes very apparent in um, Stop Making Sense because you mm-hmm. you start adding parts. It's like, you know, just like a, a a DJ or somebody. It's like, here's this part on the or someone mixing. Here is the drums. Here is the bass. Here is the guitar. You know, everything just stacking, stacking. But um, such a cool part of that that concert film, just building the band like that one track after another. It's, oh yeah, man. that It's so cool. If you haven't seen stop making sense, apparently we're not going to cover it in this book. I prefer, I prefer the film to the soundtrack of the film. I think the soundtrack of this film should have been a double album. They cut too many good songs. Well, there's a million different releases and remixes of it the, though. I've got, I've got like the, I found like a copy of like the original release of the soundtrack and being such a huge fan of the film. I was so stoked to find it. And then I put it on and every song on it's fantastic, but it's half of the concert. Yeah, it's half, yeah. you know, half. Recently, uh, rewatching Erga Music War. Uh, What's that? Then Demi gets thanked at the end. I don't know if he was 
actively like doing any of the recording stuff. But speaking of stop making sense, you know, oh, he yeah. was the one that did all of. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, uh, but yeah, he's hmm. he's thanked right at the end of it. So I'm not too sure if maybe he was floating the cash for it or not. But maybe he was like a secret cameraman, like George Lucas on Give Me Shelter. Could have been. I'm the walrus. <laughs> Again, I th- this is like how many how many albums in a row that we probably don't need to you know go around the room unless we want to. Uh, it's a good year. Every I know we've really been hitting on some very good albums. Uh, is aimed by heroes any... born. Of course, it was a good year. <laughs> <laughs> any uh, anything that anyone doesn't like about this album? A song or no? I tried. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, actually, uh, I, I will say this much. Um, first couple of listens, I wasn't sure if I liked this record. Like, what, it, Rob? It it took it took me the like. This week, I mean, this is. It Wait, what? No, no, no. no. Grab you with, with hits immediately. Like, like a like a year or so ago. Okay. Like when what? I found the record, and I was like, uh, you know, this isn't the Talking Heads I'd prefer to be listening to, but now it's my favorite one. Like, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, it, it's a uh, yeah. The 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 cost of uh, you know entry is like actually having to like sit down and like listen to the thing. Like, yeah. they, there's nothing really to hang your hat on. It's just a bunch of cool ass like fuck booty shaking grooves like and if you this is definitely a headphones album really does help to have headphones on to listen to all the fucking nut bar shit that's going on like in the case there's a lot going on yeah when i was a young punk rocker getting into the talking heads and i picked up this album back in the day I was like, I was familiar with their greatest hits. Hits I had Sand and the Vaseline, like the two disc greatest hits. And I picked up Remain Light. And upon like first listen, you know, Once in a Lifetime's a banger. And then the rest of it, they kind of jam. And like for me at that point in my life, I was like, eh, you know, like give me, punk, give me more punk rock talking heads. Give me like 77. Yeah. But yeah. at this point in my life, I am fully on board with this era of talking heads, you know? Yeah, I remember picking up this record when I was like 22 and I kind of just started smoking weed. And uh, boy, Born Under Porch, uh, Born Under Punches and Cross-Eyed and Painless, that one-two intro. Oof. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Like, yeah, I've, I've loved this record for a long time. Listening to those two those two songs back to back, it's just it just tickles my brain. It's just it's like comfort food. It's like getting some yeah. getting some ice cream out of the freezer. Is this your favorite? You know, it's going to be good. No, what's your? I'd favorite? say Fear of Music is probably still my favorite. Yeah, I I lean just a little bit more towards Fear. Going, but I mean, this week, I could probably you know go back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Going into this week, I thought that Speaking in Tongue was my fa- Speaking in Tongue was my most recent favorite. I've had different favorite Talking Heads albums over the years. My most recent favorite was Speaking in Tongues. It has most of my favorite Talking Head songs on it. But after yeah. this week, I need to go and reevaluate, you know, yeah. because remain in light. I might speaking in tongues might be boring to me if I revisit it now, because speaking in tongues has all your pop hits. But this album's more adventurous, you know? Uh, yeah. But speaking in tongues is also an incredible album. This is a, oh, a it very is. good band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is this the only one of the records that is in the uh, like the congress li- library of congress i know at least this one is i don't, I don't know, know if the others, others are 
but I do know this is. Yeah. I know this one is. Um, and the only other thing that I know is uh, Sonic Youth is in the, uh, the Library of Congress. I don't know if we're going to get to that record. I hope we do. Mm-hmm. Record's awesome. Yeah, but no, uh, yeah, we're, we're we're in a very happy time where we get to listen to records we like and talk about them. It's fucking fun. Mm-hmm. Yes. Soon we'll be yelling about how something's stupid. I just know it. But right now, I'm just enjoying the cool. <laughs> Eventually, we're going to be holes. getting to the albums that I was old enough to dislike the first time around. <laughs> yeah. You know. All right. Next time we'll be talking about Joy Division. Closer. All right. Thanks, y'all. Or is it closer? Oh.